Those are awesome. My favorite was, oh, whining, yes! <laughs> I mean, there, there were some classics in there. How about the creepy guy with the motorcycle? He's cute. Something that my daughters will never hear from me. Okay, it's Father's Day. Here comes the stereotypical church father sermon. Exactly. Yeah, you're like, oh, come on. Every, every year, actually, we haven't preached on, like, fatherhood in, in at least one year, I promise. So there is a great picture. In 1992, uh, in the Summer Olympics in Barcelona, Spain, British sprinter Derek Redman, he basically, uh, he, was, he did the 400 meters, which is basically once around the track. Um, and uh, he had been training for eight years for this. Um, he had had uh, eight Achilles operations. He would train five days a week, and he had finally recovered. He was healthy and stuff, and so he gets out there. He had won the first two heats, uh, was, gonna be, was in the semifinals, and this actually became a kind of an international thing. As he went around that first turn, so he's about a third of the way around the track, he hears his hamstring pop, and he, he falls to the ground, and everybody runs past him. And he was determined, like, I have been through so much. I've never finished one of these races because of injuries. I'm in the Olympics. I am going to finish. And so he jumps up, and all the officials came, and they were, like, trying to help him and tell him to sit down, and he's pushing him away and stuff. His dad, Jim Redmond, came out of the crowd down onto the track um, and was going to tell him, you don't have to do this. Like, you, you don't have to do this. And he looks at, it, he, at his dad, and he says, Dad, i got to finish this. And his dad says, let me help you and puts his arm around him and helps carry him that two-thirds way around the track to finish that. Like, everybody, uh, they got a standing ovation from that. And, and his dad just says, what could I do but fill in the gap? I mean, what could I do but just help him across the finish line? And, and I thought, what a great picture of fatherhood. is like, the dads, we can't run our kids' race. We can't. And they're going to pop a hamstring or roll an ankle or, or maybe they'll be amazing and, and they'll never have any struggles or whatever. But there are times that we have to come out of the crowd and, and we have to like just hold them up and say, I'm going to be right here with you. Dads do matter. You guys know that? Our society says that dads don't matter. If you look at uh, like movies... So often nowadays, the dad is portrayed as an idiot who, who doesn't know anything or a goofball that's more friend with the kids than he is father. It is rare that you actually see a dad that's like, speaks with authority, speaks with tenderness, comes alongside their kid or whatever, and, and you just don't see that. But dads do matter. Let me give you some statistics, okay? Everybody loves statistics. Uh, Mark Twain says there's lies, damn lies, and statistics. Um, so, so maybe this is a lie or a damn lie. I don't know. 63% of youth suicides are from fatherless homes. 63%. Uh, the second one, 90% of all homeless and runaway children are from fatherless homes. Think about that, 90%. Uh, 85% of all children that exhibit behavioral disorders come from fathers, fatherless homes. 80% of rapists motivated with displaced anger come from fatherless homes. 71% of all high school dropouts come from fatherless homes. 75% of all adolescent patients in chemical abuse centers come from fatherless homes. 70% uh, of juveniles in state-operated institutions come from fatherless homes. And 85% of all youth sitting in prisons grew up in a fatherless home. Morgan Freeman, um, uh, Samuel L. Jackson... Uh, like there's several black men uh, that are in Hollywood and they have come out and they said the biggest problem with black society isn't uh, the inherent racism that's in our country. It's the lack of fathers that is in black communities. And, uh, and they've, they've talked a lot about it. Samuel L. Jackson, he says, I grew up in a fatherless home and it was a real struggle. And he says, that's a big reason why my wife and I dedicated to... Uh, basically invest in our marriage is so that our kids would always have that home. 
And so here, here's what these statistics really mean. Let, let's look at them in a, in a little bit different perspective. You are five times more likely to commit suicide if you're not in a fatherless home. Five times more likely. You're 32 times more likely to run away. You're 20 times more likely to have behavioral disorders. Boys are 14 times more likely to commit rape. Nine times more likely to drop out of high school. 10 times more likely to use chemical substances. Nine times more likely to end up in a prison. That is sobering. Now, let me just say, um, excuse me, 20 times more likely in a, in a prison. If you grew up in a fatherless home, these do not necessarily mean that if you grew up in a fatherless home, you're on your way to drugs and raping and prison, okay? Just, and, and if you're a single mom and you're like, oh my gosh, my kids are in trouble, that is not the case. It just means that there is a gap that has to be filled, Okay? So it's not hopeless. Understand, it is not hopeless, okay? So uh, let me just say this. Dads do matter. And so I want to ask the question of you. Number one, what kind of dad did you have? And number two, um, what kind of dad were you if you're a dad? Okay? And I, I'm, I was putting together this sermon, and I'm asking myself. And we have kind of three categories of dads. Now, there, there's a big spectrum but I kind of divided them up into three categories to make it easier. So the first one we have is the ones that we like to talk about, the good dads. Job in the Bible was a good dad. So it says that he was blameless and upright. So there, like everybody around him, there was nothing that they could accuse him of doing. And upright means that like he was the guy that you would follow. He was the one that stood up in front of everybody and did the right thing. And you'd be like, okay, I want to follow him. He had seven sons and three daughters. 10 kids, his sons would hold feasts and invite their sisters to those feasts. So obviously there was a good family dynamic because all the kids, all the siblings got along with each other. There wasn't family drama. Early in the morning, he would intervene for his children. So they'd have these big feasts. He would go and he would pray and offer sacrifices in case, and listen to this phrase, in case they had sinned or cursed God in their hearts, in their hearts. Job understood that the heart is what's valued. The actions are going to follow whatever the heart says. Where your treasure is, there your heart is also. But it's also true that where your heart is, your actions are going to, be, are going to reveal what's in your heart. And so he, he would do these things for his, his kids. Now, sadly, he lost his kids. I mean, it's the story of Job. Everything that could go wrong went wrong. Everything that was bad went bad. And then at the end, God redeemed him. But a good dad intercedes for his kids. And notice that he did it. They didn't necessarily do it. He, he got in there and he was interceding for his kids. I cannot tell you how many hours or how many nights I have walked the floors at night after everybody was asleep, praying and worrying for my kids. <laughs> and, and sometimes it was more worry than prayer. And sometimes it was more prayer than worry. But wanting them to succeed. I mean, one time that pops in my head is uh, Joy had been homeschooled all the way through high school. And she went to uh, La Cueva, a public school and stuff. And, and we had trained her. And, and the two challenges that we had for her is, number one, um, be kind and courageous. Like, be kind to the people that are around you and be courageous. Don't be afraid of anything. And then uh, the second thing is that you need to have more influence on the people around you than they have on you. So she gets into school, and the first day comes home, and it's just in tears. It was just, it's just a culture shock. She had had a class of three with her and her two sisters, and her mom was teaching her, and so it's her mom. I mean, it's, it's such a nice teacher and stuff. And then she goes in, and the teachers just go through the process and stuff, and so it was a culture shock. Two weeks later, she's fine and, like, is conquering high school and making friends and everything's great and excited and soccer teams and, and activities and stuff. It was awesome. But there was those couple of nights I was like, Jesus, you called us to do this. Are you going to see this through? Lord, see this through. Like, as a dad, turn this around, God. Step into the situation. Help her with this. Like, I'm, I'm calling out God. God, these are your promises. Do this in my daughter's life. And so a father intercedes for his kids. The second one is Joseph, the, the, uh, the father of Jesus. Now think about Joseph. 
in Matthew chapter 1, it says, Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. So number one, Joseph had some character qualities. And, and Mary gets pregnant and he's like, oh my gosh, what is going on here? Um, well, he had character and he didn't want to like uh, defame her or anything. And so, but then, but after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. When, and then skipping forward, when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. That is a big step. That shows the character of Joseph. But then, so, so that's where it all started, is, is Joseph had character, and he had character toward his wife. So a good dad loves his wife in front of his kids. My wife and I love embarrassing our kids at home. Oh, look, kids, we're going to kiss. And they're like, ooh. And, and like even now, um, like they're walking down the hall, oh, hey, let's kiss real quick. And, and like you over-dramatize uh, it and everything, and the girls, are, they, they, they walk in, and they turn around and walk out. And, oh, it's awesome. Oh. I know the New Testament says, fathers, don't exasperate your children, but I don't think he meant that. <laughs> but Joseph, he faithfully took young Jesus to present him before the Lord in the temple, and that's where uh, Jesus ended up meeting Simeon and Anna the prophetess Anna and Simeon, a, a, an older man that had been looking for the day of the Lord. He obeyed God in a dream and took him to Egypt to protect his family. Think about that. Twice, or actually three times, he obeyed God from dreams. Um, uh, he was uh, with Mary. So they go to the temple. Jesus goes off and does his own thing. And Mary scolds Jesus. And Joseph was right there. Notice that Joseph didn't say, Oh, Mary, he's the son of God. Leave him alone. Like, and, and Jesus actually says, well, where did you expect me to be with my father? I don't think Jesus was like, well, where did you expect me to be? I'm the son of God. I mean, it wasn't like that. But notice that Joseph, he was right there. Like, parenting is, is a two-person job. It's not one person's job. It's a two-person job. So, w Sarah and I, we didn't make our kids go to church, okay? Now, if you're having to make your kids go to church, then I would say, is church a lifestyle for you or is it something that, you're do, that you do? So we would go to church and we made church a lifestyle. We have a small group and so people came over to the house. We go to church on Sundays, we serve. So as soon as our kids were old enough, I remember Rachel saying, hey, can I, she had just finished kids church and she says, can I help in kids church? Can I help lead? Like when you make that part of their life, you don't have to make them go to church. Now, if you're trying to catch up on, on lost time, you might have to make them go to church. You might have to correct them and say, you know, mom and dad were wrong. We should have had you in church all the time. So godly parents get them involved in godly things early on, like young. We used to sing. We'd read Bible stories to our kids. We'd, we'd have worship times in our house and stuff. And then the third one for a good father, <clears throat> this is a great one, it's this, the uh, parable of the prodigal son. Now, I know it's not a real father, but I want you to hear something. This is what the prodigal son, so the prodigal son goes off, he wants his inheritance, he goes off, he wastes it, he ends up being a servant, um, and like even hungering for the pig's food. And he's like, maybe if I come home, my dad will make me a servant. And this is the way that his dad responded. So he got up and went to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son. He didn't stand there make his, make his son like uh, become penitent and, and crawl to him and stuff. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, notice he didn't say it to the son. The dad already knew what he thought of the son. But he was telling the servants, the father said to the servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger. The ring was basically the, the household standard that says he's family. Uh, and sandals on his feet. 
Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. You know what this is? This is a picture of God. This is a picture of the perfect father. A good father allows his kids to fail and even walk away from him. And when they return, he is quick to accept them and doesn't require them to like make amends, to do all this stuff. It's unconditional love, and that's what God does, okay? So see how that's even different from the rest of them. Is is those other fathers, like you can go through the Bible, there's some good dads, there's some bad dads, and there's a bunch in between, and we're going to talk about some of the other ones. um, But that is a great picture of our Heavenly Father who's perfect, okay? Now we get to the flawed dads. And I I just want to say, all dads are flawed. Besides God in heaven, all dads are flawed. I am flawed. I make mistakes. I've let that curse word slip. And when I got really angry, and then I had to go back to my kids and, and, and like say, you know, I was wrong. I shouldn't have said that word. I shouldn't have even had that anger that was in my heart. That basically, if I had fixed the issue that was in my heart, then I wouldn't be cussing like that. So now if you hear me in my car with all the other awful drivers that are out there, you would think I was a perfect driver and that I think everybody else is a, a really bad driver. It is true that they are all really bad drivers. No. Um, so here's some of the flawed dads. And, and you're going to recognize some of these. And in some ways, we're all, we all kind of take a little piece of this and we say, you know, I was this sometimes or I was this other time. Or maybe you're going to hear these and you're going to be thinking, oh my gosh, yes, that was me. So the first one is the absent dad. So this is the one where, like, there should be a family picture. There should be a dad that's there. But maybe because of divorce, maybe because they're a workaholic, maybe because they're golf dad, uh, maybe he likes to drink beer with his friends and hang out with his friends more than with his family, or maybe he just shuts down. There's the absent dad. And so maybe you had an absent dad, or maybe you are an absent dad. So that, that's a flaw. That, that's a problem. It's something our kids need us in their life. The second one, and I've seen this one firsthand, is the demanding dad. This is sports dad. This is like this picture I thought was great because look how angry he is screaming at that little kid. That kid, all he wanted to do was play soccer. I mean, that, that's all he wanted to do. Rachel played soccer when she was younger, and she had um, a girl on her team that was the best player on her team. And she, would, uh, she could dribble the ball through everybody. She was fast, uh, really technically skilled and stuff. But her dad was a jerk. And he had dreams of her like, being amazing in the future. She could have made it because they had a really good coach. Um, I, I've coached for several years. I've watched other coaches. I analyzed soccer and stuff. And he was a really good coach. Number one, because at the age that they were at, which I think was like seven or eight years old, he just mainly had fun with them. They'd, do this, they'd huddle up and they'd do this little chant and then they'd all fall on the ground and he'd be right there with them and, and they'd do the chant and then he'd fall down and they'd all fall down and then they'd get up and they'd all pile on him and stuff. They loved soccer. But this dad was so abusive to the coach. He would tell his daughter, don't do, I literally heard this, don't do what the coach just told you, do this. And I'm standing on the side and I looked at him and I said, let the coach coach. Like, be a dad. And he cussed me out on the sidelines. And then other parents were like, chill out, guy. You know what? At the end of the season, his daughter was the worst player on the field. Because she would be out there, and she'd look at the coach, and she'd look at him, and back and forth, and, and she just shut down. Because he couldn't keep his mouth shut. So that, that is demanding, Dad. Maybe it's with school and grades. Maybe it's with attitude and how you act. Um, you know, one of the worst things that can happen is when you discipline kids because they embarrass you. Don't discipline kids because they embarrass you. Discipline them because they've broken boundaries that you've set. But if they embarrass you, that's not a reason to just go off and smack them around. Understand? Okay, third one is Disneyland Dad. <clears throat> Excuse me, Disneyland Dad. Now notice Dad's not in this picture. And notice the kids aren't in the picture. 
And mom is like, oh my gosh, I got so much work to do. Disneyland dad is more friend than he is father, okay? Kids have lots of friends. They have one father, okay? So if you're Disneyland dad, or if you had a Disneyland dad, understand that's not the way it's supposed to be. And what typically happens is that Disneyland dad is with the kids, and mom has to do everything. Mom has to get them ready for school, has to make their lunches, has to make dinner, has to clean the house, has to shuttle them to school or whatever. And dad's like, yeah, let's go have a water fight and stuff. Dads, get your act together and help the kids uh, and help your mom or help their mom with all the work. So that's Disneyland dad. Uh, fourth one, distracted dad. Um, <clears throat> distracted dad, uh, there, there's a... Uh, there's a quote by Charles Hummel. He says, our greatest danger in life is permitting the urgent things to crowd out the important. We can be so busy with stuff. And let me say, we can be so busy with school stuff and kids' activities that kids never get a chance to have alone time. Um, I mean, the, the number of things. We allowed our kids to do one extracurricular activity. So Joy did soccer. Um, at, right now, Abby's doing choir. Uh, and Rachel is doing acting. Uh, Rachel, for a little while, did volleyball on top of that. And then Abby was doing a little bit of acting. And man, it, it seemed like even with just those three things, Sarah and I had to get the, the grandparents involved and shuttling kids from here to there or whatever. We could notice a change in their attitude as they grew tired. And as, as they never had any rest, as they never had any downtime. And so we can get distracted with those things. But then we can also be distracted. We can be present in the home, but not be like our mind isn't present in the home. Dads, it's really easy to do. Okay? So John Maxwell, he's a great leader. He says that when I am talking with someone, I don't let the outside thoughts pop into my head. I force them out, and I focus solely on the person in front of me. I got to tell you, I have a hard time with that. That, like, I've got a thousand things running through my head and this whole list, and I keep my phone with me so that I can uh, write stuff down, and, and the busyness and the busyness, and, and pretty soon I'm distracted, and I realize I've been home all day, and I haven't really spent time with my kids. So I apologize, ladies. Fifth one, hypocritical dad. I love this picture. <laughs> Every dad's a hypocrite in some ways or another. And a lot of it is we want our kids to be better than we are. Um, now, maybe you're a big hypocrite. Maybe you're a little hypocrite. Maybe you had a dad that was like, you need to go to church, and then he didn't go to church. Or you need to love Jesus, but he really didn't love Jesus. I don't know what you had, but there's hypocrite dad out there. Um, if, you, if you're a hypocrite, just... All you have to do is say, you know what? I am flawed. I am sorry. I understand that I have got to get better at this. And then go find some accountability to help you get better than this. If you just say, I shouldn't have done this, like I shouldn't, have been, I shouldn't smoke, but you never stop smoking and you're telling your kids not to smoke, this is just some simple example, you need to go find some accountability to help you stop smoking if, if that's whatever, what it is that you're a hypocrite about. Um, this also includes, when it comes to Christian stuff, faith and forgiveness and kindness toward others. Like we think about being a hypocrite about drinking or um, cursing or whatever, but what about, we're telling our kids, you need to have faith in school. Well, when things get hard at home, do we have faith? When you're telling your kids, well, you should share Christ at school, are we sharing Christ at work? Like, we have to be better, and we have to set an example, because like it or not, and here's the scary thing, is our kids are going to inherit our strengths and our weaknesses. And that's, that's scary. I mean, I pray to God they don't inherit my weaknesses. But yet, sometimes I see it pop out, and it, and it scares me, and then I respond, like, really strongly. And then the last one is passive dad. This is also a great picture. <laughs> the kid with the megaphone. Passive dad basically sits back and doesn't do a thing. 
Like the kids can, you, you've seen him at Target. You've seen him at, at whatever store that he's just walking down the aisle. He's there and the kids are running around. They're pulling stuff off the shelves and he's, he's just kind of doing his own thing and stuff. Passive dad, here's a, most kids of passive dads don't respect authority because they've never had any. They don't develop a conflict resolution because they've never been corrected and had to learn how to deal with correction. And then the third thing is they often become passive themselves, both as spouses and as parents. So in this, I've talked a little bit about discipline, and I just want to share this about how we disciplined our kids. We weren't perfect. There were a couple of times, at least a couple of times, that I just went off and was screaming and yelling and angry and um, uh, hit, hit the beam in my living room because I was mad and um, threw a remote across the room and broke it and then I felt stupid and just little things like that. Like you just, you lose your temper and you're like, oh my gosh, how can I do that? But for the most part, we tried to differentiate between childish behavior and willful disobedience, okay? So childish behavior, a two-year-old's just gonna come in and they're gonna put their mouth on everything. And, and that's just what they do. I mean, and so they come in and they go and they wanna put their mouth on the toilet seat. And you're like, no, don't do that. Or, or they wanna reach up and they wanna touch the burner on the stove. Or, or um, dad brings out his, his gun to clean it and they wanna come over and touch it. And stuff. No. That's childish behavior. It's curiosity. And kids need to be curious about things. It's, it's them exploring the world. It's them growing. It's them learning how to deal with the things around them. And then there's willful disobedience. Willful disobedience starts when you set a boundary. And it, and it usually it has the phrase, don't do whatever it is. Don't. Okay? Our society has rejected don'ts. They're into do whatever feels right, do whatever you want, unless it infringes on someone else. But you have to, we have to have boundaries. And honestly, our kids, we've found they are more secure when they have good, close boundaries and strong boundaries. And so a boundary might be don't touch the stereo, okay? Because it scares the bejesus out of me when they turn it on and it's really loud and and I don't want them to mess it up. Okay, that's a small example. So um, my uh, sister, she tells a story of uh, uh, Noah. When he was little, uh, he used to like to go over and touch the stereo. And so what they would do is they would take his hand. I can't really do this. And they would just squeeze it. And he was like one and a half or two years old. And he'd go over and he'd touch the stereo. And they'd say, no, Noah. And he'd go and touch the stereo. And so after a couple of times, they squeezed his hand just to give some pressure because uh, they heard that toddlers respond to that. They don't like that pressure. And so uh, then they'd pick him up and they'd move him over across the room and they'd send him down. Noah, leave the stereo alone. And Noah would kind of do this. And when they give you that look, like the, are you looking? That's rebellion. That's like, it's very easy to tell. So they look, and he looks over, and he kind of tries to sneak around, and he reads, no, Noah. It's okay to tell your kids no, just saying. So they, they squeeze his hand. Like eight or nine times, they had to pull him away. And then one time he went over there, and he reached out, and he looked at his hand, and he looked at his parents, and walked away. Now, there's a whole set of lessons in there. Number one, keep the boundary and hold it. Number two, it takes endurance. Like, you can tell the mom that's just tired of dealing with it. She's in the store and her hair's all crazy and, and her kids are doing that. And they're like, stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it. If you do that one more time, I'm going to count to three. Like, all these little phrases, quick count to three. All it's teaching them to do is to wait till three. Like say, if you don't do it, but then you got to follow through. So, so we, would dis, we would set boundaries for our kids. And if they broke it and they needed discipline, this is what we would do. We would take them away from everybody else. You don't discipline anybody. Like if I were going to discipline someone in the church, let's see, who have I disciplined in the church? No, I'm just kidding. Um, if I were going to discipline someone in the church, I wouldn't do it up here. Hey, 
Uh, Norm, uh, so I heard you talking, uh, like doing some gossip the other day, so um, you shouldn't do that. How do, does everybody think that Norm shouldn't? Like you don't do it in front of everybody. Now Norm hasn't gossiped, I'm just using him as an example. Um, Norm's probably one of the last people that would gossip. But So we would take him in the other room, and I would sit down, or Sarah would sit down, and sometimes I would be too angry and I'd say, Sarah, you need to do this because I'm too angry and I'm going to say something or do something that I shouldn't. And so we would sit down and we'd get eye to eye level with them and we'd say, okay, now you know that this is the boundary and this is what you did. And we would say, do you agree? Like, what do you think you did? Um, why do you think we're upset? Why do you feel like and and they'd say and that lip would come out and and sometimes I'm like like sometimes you just can't help it because they're just too stinking cute and 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 that's all they needed but we would sit down and okay what do you think your discipline should be and I would ask them you know what because we had set the boundary, and, and sometimes we'd say, if you do this, this is what's going to happen. Yes, Sarah and I spanked our kids. We did not beat our kids. We didn't spank them out of anger. We didn't abuse them. It was always on the soft tushy, like God made this for a purpose. It was always, we used a bamboo spoon, it was, and, and it was just like pop, a little sting, that's all it took. If they put their hand back there, we'd do it twice. First, once on the hand to get their hand out of the way. And, and they, like they only put their hand back there once. They would start to put their hand back there and then they'd remember and pull their hand out and do that. But you know, and then, here's the most important part. After it was over, we would hug them and say, I love you and no matter what you do, I'm going to keep loving you. You're my daughter. You are the most important thing to me. And because I love you, I discipline you. Now, 90% of the time, you should be loving your kids with words of affection, words of encouragement, giving them hugs, telling them how beautiful they are, how smart they are, how much you love having them around, all that stuff. It's the little 10% that's the discipline. If you're doing 90% discipline and 10% love, you're making a hard child that's going to be angry. Is that, like, that is the model of discipline. It's the way God does it with us. He's gentle, but he's direct. He, he helps us along because all he's wanting to do is, like, get us to do the right thing. And then we get to the bad dad. In the movie Parenthood, um, I don't know that I would recommend that movie, but years ago, Sarah and I ended up watching it. And Mary Steenburgen is talking with Keanu Reeves, and Keanu Reeves is like, talking like this, just like he does in every other movie. Dude, can you believe that? And, and he was basically a druggie that was dating Mary Steenburgen's daughter. And they're in the kitchen, and they're talking about it, and uh, they're talking about uh, Mary Steenburgen's youngest son, who's like struggling in life. He just, he's angry, he's frustrated or whatever. And she says, it sounds like, or I'm sorry, it was Keanu Reeves' um, brother. And, he, and she says, it sounds like a boy Gary's age needs a man around the house. And this is what Keanu Reeves said. And when he said it in the movie, I, didn't, I don't even remember any other part of the movie. He said this, and it stuck with me so, so strongly. And I thought, I love that this is in the movie because there are millions of men around the world that need to hear this. He says, his name was Todd, with one D. Well, it depends on the man. I had a man around. He used to wake me up every morning by flicking lit cigarettes at my head. He'd say, hey, blankety blank, get up and make me breakfast. And then Keanu Reeves turns to, to Mary Steenburgen and he says, you know, Mrs. Buckman, you need a license to buy a dog or drive a car, hell, you need a license to catch a fish, but they'll let any blankety-blank be a father. And there are some people out there that should never be dads. And that's the truth. But 
I say that from a human perspective, and somehow God has set this up. And he gives kids to dads that are flawed or even bad, and I have no, I, I don't know why. Let's look at some biblical examples. This one blows my mind. The story of Lot. Lot was in basically Sodom or Gomorrah, one of them. And basically it was about ready to come under judgment. And these um, men were wanting, basically they were wanting people to sleep with. And, they, and uh, some angels uh, from God had come to Lot's house. And these men came into Lot's house and wanted to sleep with the angels. That's how depraved that society had got. They wanted to have sex with those angels. And they said, bring those to them. We're going to have sex. Basically, they were going to force themselves on them. I mean, talk about a creepy story in the Bible. And this is what Lot says. He says, but Lot went out to them at the doorway and shut the door behind him and said, please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. Now look, I have two daughters who have not had relations with any man. Please let me bring them out to you and do to them whatever you like. Only do not do anything to these men because they have come under the shelter of my roof. What in the world was he thinking? Like, I read that story and I wanted to throw up. We had a lady in the church whose family had sold her into prostitution. Basically, they, they let people use her for prostitution. And she had gone through a tremendous time and stuff. And I don't, I, I think there's only like a couple people in the church that, that knew this. And you probably couldn't tell from the outside. But there is a human trafficking issue in our country where parents are, are selling their kids to sexual slavery. And it's horrible. And, and maybe you've been through that process. Maybe you had that type of dad. Can I just say that God can heal that wound as deep as it is and heal that hurt as deep as it is so that you don't think of fathers in that way anymore? Here's the second one. This is Eli. Eli uh, was the chief priest, and he had two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. They didn't know God um, was the first thing that's said about them is they didn't know God. But Eli let them handle the sacrifices of all the people. And so they would actually strong arm the people when they brought the sacrifices and steal their sacrifices. And then they would have sex with the women in the temple. And everybody knew it. And he stood by and just let them do it. If you, like, if you're a dad that lets kids not only go reckless, but abuse other people, and that, that's like, I say that bad dad, I, I should say evil dad is honestly what that is. And then last of all, um, and this is what they said, and so the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord disrespectfully. This goes beyond being spoiled. And then the last one was King Ahaz. King Ahaz sacrificed his son to the god Molech. And we have an entire globe that are sacrificing their children. Now, that is guilt that some people are having to live with. And I am not trying to like pound on you guys for things that have happened in the past or whatever. But God doesn't want that. God values our kids so much that he's, he's shown himself how to be the ideal father. And he wants us to be like that. So I'm going to get into if, uh, how do we all step into God's purpose? So he, here's the first thing. And this is for dads that need to overcome some dad guilt. Okay? Because there's some dads out there. Let, I'll, I'll, maybe I'll just say it. All dads have guilt. There are things we wish we hadn't done. Uh, I can still remember Joy was probably about five years old. And she said something that I thought was sassing her, but I was angry, and I just went right on the side of the face. I still remember the sound of it in my head, and I regret that. And I, I feel guilty about it years later. I mean, she's 18 now, so 13 years after it happened, and I still feel guilty about that. The first thing that a, a dad that needs to overcome that guilt is that understand that every dad 
feels guilty about the way they raise their kids, okay? The second thing is listen to what the guilt is telling you. What, like, if the guilt is speaking to you and saying, you know, you did this, and you're just like, no, I was great, Dad. No, I shouldn't have done that to Joy. And I know it. Now, I've since gone back and apologized to her, and she's like, I don't even remember that. I'm like, thank you, Jesus. I mean, you know what I mean? Sometimes we're glad that our kids don't remember what happened. Don't be the dad that's like the Grinch, whose heart is two sizes too small. You know what I mean? Listen to what the guilt is telling you. Third thing, and this is probably the most important, is that we have to make amends. We absolutely have to make amends. You can't just write it off and say it's nothing. If our kids feel it's something, we have to go and we have to make amends. And there's a verse in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. It says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. We want to raise our kids and not have any regret. But there are things we need to repent for. But worldly sorrow brings death. And then listen to what he says. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness. So there's an earnestness to make things right. What eagerness to clear yourselves. What that means is what eagerness. It, it's to show that you disapprove of the deed. That you've, that you've done wrong. There's an eagerness to have your heart be cleansed. What indignation. You have to have a disgust for what you did. Um, what alarm, what longing, the longing of trying to restore things the right way, what concern for the victim, what concern that you did to your kids, and last of all, what readiness to see justice done. You go through that process, and you have indignation, and you have sorrow, and you have concern for them, then you will probably find forgiveness from your kids. Maybe not. But you will probably do it. And that's the steps that you have to go through, is you have to make amends. It's not just saying, I'm sorry. And we sometimes think, oh, if I say I'm sorry, that's enough. We have to make amends sometimes. You do something pretty bad, you weren't there ever, you're going to have to make amends. And then the fourth thing is remember that fatherhood is a lifelong commitment. You're not done being a dad. So don't let the past ruin the future. Okay, that's for the dads. This is for those that didn't have a dad. Or those that had a bad dad. Or those that had a, a severely flawed dad. I want to start off talking about bitterness. Because this is so key. Sometimes you can think and look at your dad who is flawed and view him as a bad, evil dad because you're so bitter in your heart and it's twisted and made your heart hard and it's twisted your thoughts about them. And so a flawed dad that's not as bad as you think he is, really, a lot of it is in your head. Here, here's a scripture out of 2 Timothy and we always view this as the end times and how bad the world is and stuff. It says, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good. We can be unforgiving because we've been hurt. Do we have the right to hold on to hurt? That is a question that you've got to resolve in your head. As Christians, as people that have been forgiven from, by God, do we have a right to hold on to hurt? We don't. And that is hard. Because if you've been sold into sex slavery, you hurt. And you can become bitter and you feel like, I have this right to hold on to that. I am telling you this not because I'm trying to point the finger and say... I'm telling you this because sometimes, here's what bitterness is. Bitterness is the poison that we drink hoping that the other person will suffer. And when we hold on to bitterness, it hurts us. It doesn't hurt them. And I am crying out to you guys. 
if you've been abused, if you've been wounded, if you've been hurt, if your dad was a piece of garbage, forgive him for your sake. And then God will work something in your heart so that you can start to forgive him for his sake. There are a lot of bad dads out there. Do you guys understand what I'm saying? Hear my heart. I'm not, I'm not trying to say, you guys are sinning. You're holding on to this. No, I'm, I'm doing it begging you because it's, it's twisting your thoughts and it's, it's ruining your life now. It's poisoning you. And, and we have a whole society that's unforgiving. The whole racial injustice thing. There's a, a whole, there, like there's some truth to it, but then there's a lot of unforgiveness in it. That we want retribution, and we want you to make amends and stuff. And, and some, the truth is somewhere in there, but we can't hold on to this because all it does is make us angry and bitter and hard, and then we transfer that to our kids. And then let me say this. In Psalms it says, sing to God, sing in praise of his name, extol him who rides on the clouds. Rejoice before him, his name is the Lord, a father to the fatherless. A defender of widows is God is in his holy dwelling. God sets the lonely in families. Just like the prodigal son, God is a compassionate God that knows how to father. And some of the things that we struggle with in Christianity is because we um, put our thoughts of our dad on God. And we always feel like God is like abusing us. He's just hard. He's just correcting us all the time. He's just telling us. we. And, and so you view God as the God of judgment. Or maybe we your, your parent sold you into sex slavery or they they sold you uh they were absent or whatever and you're like you know god's never around or or god is just using me for his stuff and he doesn't really care about me and when i really need him he's just gonna abandon me and that's not the way god is god is tender he's compassionate he's strong he's our strong tower so that when things are going hard we can go to him He's the defender of our faith. He's our shield, our fortress. He speaks to us like so that we can call him Abba Father, which is like daddy or dad. Dad, tell me, like, what are you wanting to do? What are you wanting to do in my life? And God speaks words into your life. And it transforms something inside of you. And, and, and life comes into your heart. And so you can have a natural dad that killed stuff in your heart. But God will create something in your heart. Let's stand up. Let's have the worship team come on out. God is the perfect balance of grace and judgment. He gives words of encouragement and he gives words of correction. And here's a great thing is that when we go through trials, he only allows us to go through what we can handle. That's in scripture. Like he doesn't throw us into situations that we can't handle. He throws us into situations that are going to help us mature and grow. He is the perfecter of our, perfecter of our faith because he is perfect. Now there, I'm going to end with this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, there's a verse that says this, and this is a call to everybody in this room. Paul says, even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, or even if you had 10,000 teachers, he says, the problem is that you have not many fathers. You don't have enough fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. Paul had Timothy and Titus, but he also had all these other people that he invested in. And God may be calling you to be a father or a mother to someone else. 
because God sets the lonely in families. So we have prayer up here. We're moving prayer from the back to the front. And a big reason why we're, we're doing it is, is we want to make sure that people see that prayer is needed. We want to, like front and center, boom, there's prayer. But I talked about three different people. If you're a dad that's struggling with guilt, I want you to step out and come right up here. And if you're embarrassed about it, good. It's okay. If you're someone um, who is struggling with, with hurt from their dad, I want you to come up here to the prayer team. Or if you're someone that feels like God is calling you to father or mother someone, then I want you to come up and have them pray for you so that you can find the right person. Now, if you feel like God's calling you to father or mother someone, like to be a father to someone, number one, get your house in order first before you invite someone else in there. Don't bring them into your junk. Like if you're not having quiet times and you're not coming to church and you don't have a great attitude and you're not like you're not doing the things that you need to do, you're going to be a terrible influence on them and it's not going to last very long or it's going to be dysfunctional. So get your house in order first. But if you're like ready and you've just kind of been waiting, come up and have them pray for you and help you know, like find that person that you're supposed to minister to. All right, let's pray. Father, <laughs> Father, you're our heavenly Father. You're the perfect example of a dad. Your grace and your compassion, your strength, your vision, you put together plans, you speak to your kids, you invite them into your presence. You spend time with them. When they call out to you, you come. When they ask for help, you give them help. When we need something, if we ask for bread, you don't give us a stone. God, you are a great father. And I pray this morning that you would stir up in people's hearts a call to step into what you've called them to be whether it's getting past the wounds that are in their hearts or whether it's getting past the guilt that's in their heart or whether it's helping someone else through those things. In Jesus' name.